You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. And we're going to pick up in verse 7 this morning. So if you would, stand with me as we honor the, the reading of Scripture together. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. As David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass meant for riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their inclusion Stop there. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you would use it in our lives this morning. We ask that you guide us. Lead us to truth. Your spirit works a a wonderful way and in our hearts and lives this morning. Lord, we pray that the name of Jesus would be glorified and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The, the section of, of Scripture that we find ourselves in is uh, really Romans 9 through 11. That's this section. And some have, have just taken it and pulled this whole section out of the book of Romans and, and gone so far as to say, we really don't need it. It's a parenthesis in the whole argument of the book. I I don't think that is true, but we do see how Romans 9 through 11 comes together because that whole section is Paul answering uh, a single question, a single objection. And that is looking at the rejection of the gospel by the Jews. How is it that God's word has not failed? And Paul proceeds then in these chapters to give uh, seven different lines of argument in answering that question that he opened with at the beginning of Romans 9. So in in the portion of Scripture before us this morning, these verses, we really have uh, two things that's going on. If you remember, we had these, these seven different points, and really what we're doing now is starting on the sixth point. So Verses 7 through 10 is really a, we'll call it just a summary of where we have gone before. And then verses 11 through 12, Paul begins the the sixth phase of his argument and begins to answer that question that many have had, a question that Paul anticipates, and that is, why are the Gentiles being saved in droves while Israel, by and large, is rejecting Jesus? Now certainly, There are some Jews that are being saved. 
Paul has made that point. He's actually made the point that he is one of them. There are also Gentiles who are resistant to the gospel. But Paul is, is still using some, some overarching language here. Some broad brushstrokes. The salvation of the Gentiles and the rejection of the Jews. And Paul's point is amazingly clear. That during this time in history, what is happening is that by and large, the nation of Israel is rejecting the Messiah while the gospel is flourishing among the Gentiles. Now in the sixth stage of Paul's overall argument, the point is this. The salvation of the Gentiles, which is now occurring, is meant to arouse jealousy in Israel. It's meant to arouse them to envy and thus be a means of saving some of them. This whole line of argument is in Romans 11, verse 11 through 24. And I love this statement, these verses. We're picking it up here on a a glimpse. We catch a glimpse into the, the purposes of God. We know that that God has a purpose for everything that he does. The scripture describes him as being all wise with ways that are far beyond us. So to understand God to be acting with wisdom and purpose. But on the other hand, we admit that we do not always, in fact, we hardly ever see and understand the plan of God. Here, however, God tells us through the Apostle Paul that the hardening of the Jews and the salvation of the Gentiles is not without purpose. We'll get more into that in a few minutes, but this leads us to the first part of the text, and that's really a a summary of where we have gone. So let's just go back to verse 6 for a moment. This is where we, we left off a couple weeks ago in the book of Romans. But if it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. The point is clear in that text. Grace and works do not mix. If grace is mixed with works, it is no longer grace. If we try and mix works with grace, then it's no longer works. It's just common sense. You can't work for something and then have it given to you at the same time. You can't be given something freely and then work to earn it at the same time. It doesn't make sense. That's Paul's point. Either salvation is by grace alone, or it is not. Then in verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. So notice what he's getting at here. So, So works. You see the the connection between verse 7 and verse 6? They were working toward something. They were trying to earn and and, and get something by works. Namely, they were seeking a a righteousness that came from the law. But the Gentiles received that righteousness not by works of the law, trying to earn it, but they obtained it by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says that the elect obtained it and the rest were hardened. Really what Paul is doing is giving us a a summary here of his teaching so far in Romans 9-11. through So we must ask ourselves, what has Paul taught? 
In Romans 9, Paul taught us about election, the doctrine of election. And Paul showed us that God's purpose in salvation has not failed because even though a great number of Jews are rejecting the gospel, those that God has chosen, those that God has elected to salvation are being saved. In chapter 11, Paul puts himself in that category with along with a, a 7,000 in the days of Elijah that did not bow down to the Baals. And not only did Paul teach about election, but he also talked about the flip side of that, which is reprobation. It's God passing by those who are not saved. So sovereignly choosing not to elect some to salvation. Now, in Romans 10, Paul goes on to make it very clear that this, this does not eliminate the guilt of those who were passed by since we are responsible for our own actions, including the action of unbelief. Now let me just add at this, at this point that, that many times we, we look at these truths, these doctrines of election and reprobation, and we see them very wrongly because we think that they must be arbitrary. We think of, of God as, as picking up a flower and, and plucking off petals saying, I love you, I love you not, I love you, I love you not. He, he sees people and says, I choose you, but I don't choose you. And it's not dependent on what one does that is good or bad. We've made that point in Romans 9. So in our minds, the only alternative is God arbitrarily choosing those who have eternal life and those who do not. So in the end, we think those who are saved are saved because of God's random choice of you and not somebody else. Now, I'm not going to pretend that there's not a lot of mystery here. There is, but we can confidently say that God's choice is not arbitrary and it is not random. God has a reason for everything that he does. It may very well be that that reason is unknown to us, but it does not change the fact that God is all wise and everything that God does is with purpose. To believe that the creature could ever comprehend the ways of an almighty God is naive at best. Paul says very clearly in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, says, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now just catch the weight of that statement. There's nothing arbitrary in that statement about predestination. In fact, the word predestination puts an end to the things being arbitrary. Predestination assumes that there's a destination in mind for that individual. God didn't just choose here some to salvation, but he chose them for adoption as his sons. This wasn't done as one picks petals from a daisy. It was done as a father chooses a child to adopt. One whom he calls his son or daughter and gives them all the rights and privileges that comes with that. Now go further in the text. Why did God do this? We are told it was according to the purpose of his will. So was predestination arbitrary? Absolutely not. It was done with purpose that aligned with God's holy will. 
We may not know what that is. We may may not be able to, to understand it, but we do have it spelled out very clearly that God, who is all wise and does everything for the purpose of his will in order to bring glory and honor to himself, predestined some to salvation passed by others for a reason. The purpose of his will. In Romans 9 through 11, Paul taught about election. He taught about reprobation. Third, he also taught that there was a reason for humanity's rejection of the gospel. In this case, the Jews are a great example of this since Paul is discussing their fate in these chapters. In fact, it is the same for all who are apart from Christ. People reject the gospel because they want to establish their own righteousness and do not want to submit to the righteousness that comes from God. Think about it this way. How many times have you heard another person, or how many times have you thought this way yourself, that that when thinking about something that you've done that isn't good, that you know in in your heart it's sin, and you find yourself then comparing that action that you did or somebody else around you is doing with, with other people? And then as you think about it, you eventually start thinking, well, this isn't that bad a thing because there's other people that are doing things that are so much worse in this area. I'm really not that bad. We do this all the time. I I hear it all the time. When When I talk with people, people trying to establish their own righteousness or convince me or whoever, in, in one way or another, that their sin is justified because there are others who do the same thing or other things, and they do them worse. My friend, we need to see this for what it is. It's a lie from the devil. Here is the fact. The righteous standard that we will be held against isn't the righteous standard of others or ourselves. The fact is, it doesn't matter if we lie less or steal little or lust infrequently. The righteous standard we are held to is God's standard as revealed in the Scriptures. And whether we fall short a little or a lot, it doesn't matter. We still must flee to Christ and trust that He is the only one to earn the righteous blessing from God by His obedience. Our obedience is as a filthy rag. And we need to be clothed with the the perfect white robe of righteousness of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake here, I'm talking about Christians too. We fall into that trap of trying to establish our own righteousness. We overlook our own sin because we see that that somebody else is is worse off. So compared to them, we see ourselves as as pretty good and and we justify ourselves as a, a little bit. But we need Christ just the same. The righteous standard that we'll be held against is not our own. Somebody else. We don't need to prove ourselves as righteous. That makes sense. By justifying our sin, we're trying to prove ourselves as as righteous before God? Can you imagine that? Getting to heaven one day and trying to prove yourself? Well, I'm, I'm righteous enough. Good enough? Not as bad as so-and-so down the street. I mean, so that, this guy, he, he lists all these things that this guy's done. Me? I'm pretty good. It's not good enough. 
Fourth, Paul is also taught that what happened historically, the overall rejection of Christ by Israel had been foretold by God. In other words, God was not taken by surprise that Israel had rejected the Messiah. In fact, it served a purpose in God's overall plan, and that is really what Paul says here starting in verses 11 and 12. I said at the start that we see a glimpse of God's plan here. In verse 11, we're told that salvation has come to the Gentiles in order to make Israel jealous. That's God's plan. The text here actually reminds me of another one. It reminds me of Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 15, possibly because I've been thinking about parables last week since Jeremy's message. But in any case, that word jealous there struck a chord with me. In, in Luke 15, we read of a, a younger brother taking his share of an inheritance. He goes off, he wastes it all, and then in the end, he's welcomed back lavishly by his father, and the elder son is resentful and bitter. He's jealous of the father's love for the younger son. And the interesting thing about this parable is the story ends... It isn't resolved. The family situation isn't resolved. One commentator said that the reason for this is that the obvious answer is that Jesus wanted the hearers or the readers of the story to think this through, to see where they fit in in the story. The, the family turmoil in this parable echoes what we see from the earliest chapters in the Bible. Cain is jealous of Abel because God accepts his offering in Genesis chapter 4. Ishmael is rejected in favor of the younger Isaac in Genesis 21. Esau greatly resents Jacob's trick in stealing his birthright and blessing in Genesis 27. And then on a much grander scale, Joseph's older brothers all hate him and are furious that his father loved him the way he did. And they think about killing him, but instead sell him into slavery in Genesis 37. Notice that in each story, it includes God's vindication and establishment of the younger brother. And the family situations weren't resolved. Abel was dead. Isaac and Ishmael lived separate lives. Isaac and Jacob had a truce, but it was chilly at best. Here's my point in bringing up Luke 15 and pointing out the establishment of the younger brothers in Genesis. And that is that in Paul's world, Israel had taken the position of the elder brother and the Gentiles have joined, the Gentiles who have joined in some Jews accepting the gospel are in the position of the younger brother. Can't you see? This in the story of the lost son being played out in the nations. Israel, by and large, will say to God, what? You, you've accepted them? You've loved them this way? That you would offer them salvation? That you would give them all the, the rights and the riches and the blessings that belong to, to us, your chosen people? You would do this for them? And they would get jealous and they would long for that. And ultimately, we're told, it will lead to their salvation. That's God's purpose. It's a jealousy that would propel at least some of them, more of the Jews, to faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul says, this is precisely what God is doing this for. This is his plan. Now, in verses 11 and 12, Paul makes four points here that we need to keep in mind throughout the rest of the chapter. Just, just look at those verses 
in your Bible for a moment and see if you can notice these four basic points. First of all, Israel has stumbled, but their stumbling isn't final. They stumbled, but they're going to get up. They stumbled, but they haven't fallen. That's, that's the, the way it's worded. That's the point. Second point, Israel's stumble had a purpose. It would be used by God to bring salvation to the Gentiles. Third, the salvation of the Gentiles will lead in time to the fullness of Israel. That is to the salvation of the Jews, and this will in turn to lead to even greater Gentile blessings. And then fourth, the way this will happen is by the spiritual riches of the Gentiles making Israel envious. See those four things in there? In other words, the Jews will see what the Gentiles have, recognize that these blessings were intended for them, and they will long to have them too. That's the point. So look at this in terms of, of two different categories. Gentile salvation and then the salvation of Israel. So the first two points that we talked about just a second ago are unquestionably true. Israel's rejection of Jesus and their rejection of Jesus resulted in the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles. Those two things are without a doubt true. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that before this, Gentiles could not be saved. That's not what we're saying at all. What we are saying here is that with broad strokes, by and large, all Israel is rejecting Jesus, right? Broad strokes, so not every single person. Painting with a broad brush, we say Israel is rejecting Jesus. That's an appropriate way to, to look at this. Israel, then, at this time, are being saved. People are coming to faith all over the place in the Gentile world. Not all of them. Some of them are hard. But again, with, with broad strokes, we see a, a, a mass conversion of Gentiles. And we can say that during this time, a great number of Gentiles are being saved. That would be very appropriate. Now, we know that the first Christians were Jews. Of course, a lot of them, people from all over, were saved at Pentecost. But in Acts chapter 2, we also know that the first church continued to, to meet in the temple. The first church was, was tied very much to the Jewish faith. We see this in the, the controversy all the way in, in Acts chapter 15 about Gentile converts and, and what they must do to be saved. Some thought that they must become Jews. And if things continued this way, the Christian religion might have been just thought of as a sect of Judaism. But it was because of opposition to the gospel by the Jewish authorities that really serve to separate the two. In Acts chapter 4, we're told, we're, we see how, how Peter and John were brought before the Sanhedrin and, and threatened harm if, if they didn't stop preaching Jesus. In chapter 5, we learn that the apostles were arrested and, and beaten for continuing to preach Jesus. In chapter 7, we read of the death of, of Stephen, and it triggers a, a, triggers a general persecution of, of the church in chapter 8, verse 1. Of course, the Christians then scatter. Philip, one of the just newly elected deacons, goes to Samaria, and many Samarians believe the gospel. 
Gentiles, by the way. Then he goes south along the desert road to, to Gaza, explains the gospel to a, an Ethiopian eunuch, a Gentile. That Ethiopian eunuch gets saved, carries the gospel back to Ethiopia. And this happens all because of the hostility of the Jews toward the gospel. Paul's story is extremely important as well. Of course, he's saved as he's going to arrest Christians, but after his conversions, he might have stayed in the city, but except for the Jewish rejection of Jesus, these Jews there wanted to kill him, so the disciples saved his life by lowering him out of a wall in the city. Later, on Paul's journeys... He would go into the the synagogue first. The Bible says that was his custom. That's where he went, to the Jews first. And the gospel was almost universally rejected. So then he would go to the the Gentiles. It's interesting that Paul calls himself an apostle to the Gentiles. Why would he do that if he went to the synagogue first? Because they rejected the gospel, but the Gentiles embraced it. So that's the the first two of those four points. Israel rejected Jesus. That rejection resulted in an expansion of the gospel to the Gentiles. You see that played out in the book of Acts. But what about the third and fourth points? Remember, the third point is that salvation of the Jews will lead to a fullness of Israel. Now, this hasn't happened yet, but we're told that it will. Now, there are a few ways of looking at this, and we're going to get into this more later on in our series, but some have taken this to mean that Paul here is speaking about the, the physical nation of Israel, that one day the physical nation of Israel will be saved, their hard hearts will be softened, there'll be a great revival among the Jews because they are Jews and God will be faithful to his promise to redeem them. Others see Paul here as speaking about spiritual Israel. The total number of elect Jews and elect Gentiles uh, together make up spiritual Israel. I would suggest here, in this text, what Paul is speaking about is the nation of Israel. I think later on he turns to spiritual Israel, as he's already done at the start of Romans 9, as he makes the point that in the end of the section, how he can say that all Israel will be saved and God's word was accomplished... He does turn to what he, what he terms as spiritual Israel, but here he's talking about the, the physical nation of the Jews. He's saying that the jealousy of these Jews will ultimately lead to hearts that are softened, and with a broad stroke, we'll say that Israel is embracing the gospel, just as we've been saying about the Gentiles now. Their hearts won't be hearts anymore. They'll be accepting the, the gospel. The time of great hostility will be over. That's how I understand the third point. What about the fourth point? This is where things get a little bit interesting. However we understand the salvation of Israel, we understand that it has not happened yet and that it will happen as Israel sees the spiritual blessing or riches of the Gentiles and they become envious. Now, notice this. Notice how this is going to be played out. We're Gentiles, by the way. Just make sure we're all, most of us anyway, in that category. In other words, the way in which Gentiles live in dependence on the gospel 
provokes the nation of Israel to, to jealousy. Jews want what the Gentiles have. But as one scholar said, Gentile Christians have not lived in a way that would provoke anyone, let alone Jews, to envy what they possess. So the, the question is, does our conduct as Gentiles lead Jews to desire what we have? Or, a little bit broader stroke, does it lead anyone to desire it? Tremendous implication here for evangelism, isn't it? Of course, I'm not saying that this is only one-sided, that the blindness and hostility of the Jews and other groups of the gospel is absolutely amazing. I, I read a book uh, this last week called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus by Nabil Qureshi. Has anybody ever read that? Um, a, a great book, I, I would challenge you to read it. But here's this, this guy that is so steeped in his, his Muslim religion that it just took so much time for him to, to admit it to himself that he needed to trust in, in Jesus. The, the evidence was all there. Everything is, is pointing to this. He needed to be convinced of more than just facts. He needed to change his, his heart that was hostile toward the God of the Bible for so long. Having said that, there were several people in his story that both presented the truth of Christianity to him, that were patient in answering his questions, and I'm sure that he saw their faith lived out because they, they loved him. They were willing to spend a time with him. This leads me to some final thoughts related to evangelism based on the text. How are we to evangelize? <clears throat> let, me give you a, let me give you just a couple different points. One, we should be friends with those we wish to win. We should be friends with those we wish to win. In the story of Nabil Qureshi, his friends were instrumental. They were the means in which God used to change his heart. They were his friends, not just for a short time, but for years, not just for a purpose of sharing their faith, but they were his friend. I'm all about sharing our faith with strangers on a plane, but there's something about developing relationships with other people for the purpose of sharing our faith with them. I mean, most of about not having unbelieving friends. Some of us surround ourselves with Christians all the time, so much, in fact, that there's absolutely no place in our life for evangelism. Others in the church go so far the other way and only surround themselves with non-Christians so there's no place for the church in their life. And then they end up looking more like their non-Christian friends than they do the Christ of the Bible. And this was a struggle the nation of Israel had in the Old Testament when it comes to the nations around them. Second, we should, we should be models of help and service. We should strive to, to serve and help people. I'm not talking about just this in, in simply as a, a bait and switch where we just help them to evangelize them and then just forget them. It's true to say, though, that good deeds lead to goodwill, which leads to a proclamation of the good news. That's a good way to, to look at it. But we should be models of, of help and service no matter what. We should Third, we should let everything we do be characterized by love. Everything we do be characterized by love. The word love these days in the Christian world has been almost hijacked 
Some view love as something the Christian does at the expense of truth because they do not want to hurt or offend anyone. A lot of the, the books that you read that talk about Christian love are this way. A lot of those that, from outside the Christian faith, looking in at us, say, aren't you supposed to love people? And this is the kind of love that they're talking about. The thing is that, is that love does hurt and offend at times. Of course, that's not the purpose of it. The purpose in loving somebody is having their best interest in mind, and sometimes what is most loving is to tell people what they don't want to hear, namely the truth of the gospel. Paul went to synagogue after synagogue. When he was rejected in one synagogue, he would go to the next community, he would go to the synagogue. He was rejected every time, but, but every time he continued because he knew that what he was doing was the most loving thing that he could possibly do for those people. And his words at the onset of chapter 9 prove his point. I wish I was cursed and cut off for Christ for their sake, he says. But people were offended and hostile to Paul's Loving efforts. My point is that we must care for others and love them enough to be their friend, to put in the time to to answer their questions, to love them as Jesus did, not at the expense of the truth, but for the cause of the truth. Fourth, it goes without saying, but in any effective evangelism strategy, the gospel must be verbalized. The gospel must be verbalized. We've talked about how we are to live and earn goodwill. That we are to to love others. But the gospel must be verbalized. The gospel is a message about Jesus. Some will say something like, always preach the gospel and when necessary use words. It's not a good statement and Francis of Assisi didn't say it. The gospel is a message that must be verbalized or it isn't the gospel. The good deeds and the good will are not the gospel. They lead to a verbalization of the gospel. They lead to the proclamation of the gospel. They lead to the good news about Jesus. The message that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he died for our sins, that he paid the penalty for us and then rose in victory over our sin and death. And if we trust in what he has done, we will inherit the blessing that he earned for us, not the wrath that we deserve. That's the gospel that must be verbalized. It can't be lived out. So, as we think through this text. And as we think about all these, these complex things about, well, what, what does this mean about Israel and the future and, and prophecy and all of this stuff? We need to understand that we ourselves fit into this. That it's the, it's the, the living, the way that the Gentiles live and cling to Christ and live out their faith that is to make the Gentiles jealous. It will bring an end to the hostility. And then it'll be usher in a time when we see Jews come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We long for that. We pray for that. No? Let's pray again. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word to us. 
Lord, we pray that that you would bring this about. That we would be people who are so devoted. We make friends with people who are not Christians. That we act in, in love. We're models of help and service. That we verbalize the gospel. That people will, will see what we have. That we care so much about others. To, to learn and be able to answer their questions. and The way we interact with others, we pray, Lord, that people would long to embrace the gospel. Lord, we pray that we would see in our life an, an end to the hostility of the gospel by some groups. Lord, we pray that you soften hearts. We pray that people respond to the gospel. Lord, we pray that you do that in our community. We would see just a, a, an amazing effect of the gospel proclamation that goes on. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.